0: Last week, Dr. John Whitaker led us through uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and he made a a little comment that I kind of wanted to use to springboard into my intro, uh, into Ecclesiastes chapter 3. He commented that as you read through Ecclesiastes, you come across passages which sound like they shouldn't be in the Bible, um, which is correct. I don't know to what degree you've studied Ecclesiastes, how often you've read it, but when you read it, you read things that uh, are the kinds of things you would expect perhaps a skeptic to say, um, a person who's a non-believer. They're not the kinds of things that good, pious, faithful Christians say. And, and it's led to all sorts of ways of approaching the book. Um, I know when I was kind of young in the faith, most of the preachers I heard teaching on it liked to, not like to, I, that's not probably accurate. They typically taught that Solomon, the preacher who, well, the writers identified as the preacher. Um, he is most commonly associated with Solomon. He never refers to himself specifically um, by, by that name, but that the preacher who is delivering the message is in an apostate state. That is, he's in a state where he's fallen away from the Lord. And I don't think that's accurate. I don't think that's accurate. And and I want to kind of intro by giving you a way of thinking about Ecclesiastes that I've come to in the last couple of years. And and to do that, I want to preface all of this by pointing out something. And that is that I I think a lot of people in our culture, and, and I don't just mean Christians, I mean, in general, when anybody, atheist, skeptic, Christian, people of other faiths, when they think of the term scriptures, when they think of book or a holy writing that is somehow given to us by God, whatever God people might worship, I think the tendency is for people to envision that scriptures are somehow written down by God in heaven, and then to some degree, kind kind of given down to us, almost like he personally, having written it, takes it and just gives it to his servants, and then we just receive the word of God, which is given from heaven, and then we just state the things that he says. Certainly some religions... Their story about how their scriptures come about sound very much like that. I would point to, of course, Islam, where, where you had literally the angel Gabriel coming down and dictating from on high the message of God to Muhammad the prophet. Something very similar with Joseph Smith and Mormonism where there are these golden plates that are, are given, that are imbued with God's word on it and which he was then to translate into the Book of Mormon. That is, it's just two religions that think that way. But lots of people think that way when they think of the Scriptures. And I think Christians tend to kind of think that way when we think of our Scriptures, the Bible. We tend to think of it as something that God pinned in his own hand and gave to us. And what I want to say, guys, is that's not the case. That our Scripture, our Bible, it is not written in that way. And so I wanted to pause and just before we get to Ecclesiastes, just look at this very interesting thing that Peter says. Looking here in 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 20, says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Here his point being that we don't have the freedom to open our Bibles and ascribe whatever interpretation we want to bring to it. The point being that there is a point implicit in it that God is trying to make. Whatever scripture we might be looking at, God is trying to communicate something. And then verse 21, and this is the key thing I want you to look at. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And here we see, and you can go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes 3. That was all I wanted to look at Here we see holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And here we see something very interesting about the word of God, the scriptures that we read. And that is, is that you don't see God dictating or God writing. You see God speaking by his Holy Spirit through people. That is through human beings. Um, I've read some theologians who make a comparison that I don't know if this is accurate. You don't have to think that this comparison is interesting. I find it interesting, so I'm going to go ahead and make it. They draw attention to John 1.1. You guys are all familiar with John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And we know, of course, that the Word, which was with God, was Jesus Christ, right? So it's interesting that that the Word of God is, on the one hand, we use that phrase to describe our Bibles. On the other hand, we use it to describe Jesus, our Lord. He is the Word of God, and the thing that the that's interesting about Jesus being the Word is you have to understand that. Well, actually, let me back up a little bit. Christian doctrine concerning who Jesus is. Let me let me pause and kind of clarify that. Uh, first of all, make a note. You don't need to turn here. First Timothy chapter two, verse five. First Timothy chapter two, verse five, reveals to us a little bit about the nature of Jesus. I just quoted John one one. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. First Timothy, chapter two, verse five, we read that there is one God and there's one mediator between God and man. And that mediator is, is the man, Jesus Christ. It actually says the man, Jesus Christ. So we have in these two verses, very important doctrinal reality, that our Lord whom we worship is God, fully God, but he's also a man. And it's really important you understand what that means. It means that God did not put on a human suit and zip it up and walk around amongst us to kind of make us feel like he was human. It means that God became a human being, like became a human being just like you and me with one difference in that we sin and he doesn't. But in every other way, he's like us. He was born into the world like us. He had bodily needs like we have. He had to eat. He had to drink. He had to sleep. He went through stages of life like we do. He was a baby, an infant. That means he had to learn things like how to talk and how to walk and all of that kind of stuff. And it's a startling thing when you stop and consider that the God of the universe had to learn how to talk, right? The word of God was both God and man. This is what I started to reference a little bit ago. I've read some theologians who like to make a comparison between the flesh incarnation of God, Jesus, and the written word of God, the Bible. Jesus is God incarnated in human flesh. The Bible is the word of God incarnated in human words, through human people, communicated through human beings, not given to us from on high, but given to us through holy men of God who were moved by the Spirit. And this is so important because what that means is is that the Word of God, as it's moving through a human being, it is also passing through that human's understanding of the world and his feelings and his experience. And this is so important because God is trying to communicate something that is impossible for us to understand. As you read on in the Gospel of John, it says that no man has seen God at any time but the only begotten son, Jesus, declares him. The point there is, is that we can't even begin to understand God in his nature. Like when you say God is omnipresent, he's everywhere at once. We believe that. It's true. What does it mean though? Right? I mean, like, I don't know how that correlates to I have a microphone in me. The microphone is not God. Like, how is he everywhere at once? Like, these are concepts we kind of grasp because we know what it means to be places and things like that. But we can't really understand. We can't wrap our heads around it. We don't and cannot just understand God as he is. And because of that, he becomes flesh and dwells amongst us. Because whereas we can't understand God fully as he is, we can understand people because we're people. We understand how people feel and how they think. And so when we see Jesus, God is revealed to us because Jesus is a human being. And so the way he acts, the way he conducts himself, the way he carries himself, I can look at him and say, that's how God is. And I get it. And thus he is the revelation of God. And it's the same thing, not the same thing, but similarly by comparison, the word of God, the Bible, it's like I read it and I go, oh, I get what God would say to me through human language, and he used a human being to tell me this. And this is so important, guys, because I what I believe about the preacher, this, you know, Solomon, as he's, as he's writing this chapter, as he's communicating, what he's doing, is he is going through a bit of life that I I think, and I don't know, I'm not in every I can't get in every single person's head, but it certainly is reflective of my own journey as a human and as a believer. He's expressing thoughts and feelings and doubts and curiosities that every human experiences that we all go through. And what he is doing in this book is he is sitting there saying, I really need to figure out what is true. I need to figure out what is right about the world that I live in. And you need to understand a couple of things. One, the preacher, Solomon, he doesn't have... On the one hand, the entirety of the Bible that we have, he doesn't know about Jesus coming and and living with us and dying and resurrecting. He's not familiar with those things. The only Bible he would have had access to would have probably been the law of Moses, which would have been the commandments primarily that Israelites were supposed to follow. If you look through the first five books of the Bible, there, the Genesis through Deuteronomy, there's very little, if anything, that deals with death and the afterlife and, and really like the deep things of the world. And the the preacher is going around and he's saying, I look at life and I'm trying to understand it and I have very little to go on. But with it also comes this natural human thing, which is I have the law. I have what the law teaches me. I have the things I've learned from my parents and from my preachers and my teachers. And I need to test it to see if it's true. And he starts to test it in the world and he starts to see that the world isn't quite what, he was made to believe it would be, or at least he doesn't understand it as much as he thought that he should have understood it. And so we're going to read through chapter three now, and we're going to read some observations. The first part I think you could take, well, let's just get to it. Chapter three, verse one. This is that bit that if you're familiar with anything in in Ecclesiastes, that would be what we're about to read. It was popularized, famous song by the birds In the 1960s, you guys know, to everything, turn, 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 there is a season, that song. Chapter 3, verse 1, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep a time to laugh a time to mourn a time to dance a time to cast away stones a time to gather stones or time to gather stones a time to embrace a time to refrain from embracing a time to gain a time to lose a time to keep a time to throw away a time to tear a time to sow a time to keep silence a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time of war, and a time of peace. I'm going to come back and talk about those, but he has a verse that really defines what he's doing here, and I want to get to it before I come back. What prophet, verse 9, has the worker from that in which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Verse 11 is kind of the key verse I want to camp on. And I'll come back and try to explain different parts of this. But verse 11 is the verse that explains that poem that we just read. That poem of contrasting ideas that are put forth. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, I'm reading from the New King James translation, which I do, I like this translation a lot. It's probably my favorite one to use for various reasons. Don't want to get into why. But there are a lot of good translations. And I'm going to point out, very importantly, in the chapter that we're reading today, two places where this translation messes up. This is one of them. One of the reasons why I do like reading the New King James is it follows the Old King James. And the Old King James has that style I grew up with. You know what I mean? So it's like a lot of it's like a stylistic thing as much as anything. And I like the way this verse sounds in the New King James. He has made all things beautiful in its time, right? And doesn't that sound nice? It sounds very, I don't know, not just aesthetically pleasing, it sounds very sentimental. But it's not really accurate to what this passage is trying to say. It's not talking about the beauty of things. It's talking about the propriety of things, meaning God has set everything an appropriate time, okay? There is a time and a place and a situation for just about every kind of thing and event, all right? And now you think back now to the list that we just read through. There is a time in this world to be born and there is a time to die. There is a time a season literally in the world when you go out and you plant. You don't plant during harvest season. You plant during planting season and you harvest during harvest season. The point is, is there are set times when it is appropriate and right that something should happen. Now, there's a bunch of things we can draw from this and I, I wanna uh, you know, kind of start with just this big picture concept. The big picture idea that I want you to understand is, is that God created... A world. And in this world, he infused it with design and purpose and goodness. And the design and purpose and the goodness of it was was like there from the beginning when the world should have carried on perfectly without sin, without death and destruction, all that kind of stuff. But with the fall, with Adam and Eve partaking of the fruit, with sin entering into the world, the world we live in has grown corrupt, it has been changed. And I just want to pause here and say something that I think is really important. You see, we have a tendency to kind of break up the world into good things and bad things. And we tend to think of the good as something that we want to embrace, as something that we want to have more of in our lives. And we think of the bad as something to be repudiated. The bad is something that we're supposed to get rid of and do away with, right? But what the preacher is saying here is he's saying, no, 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 no. The world as it is has appropriate times and places for just about everything. And and if you really want to understand the righteousness that God has infused in this world, you have to understand that reality, right? Um, It's the devil, Satan, the flesh, the bad things in this world, they don't have a creative capacity. They don't have the ability to come out and just make evil and and bring it out into the world and say, look, this is evil and this is the thing that you all need to avoid. No, what they do is they take things that God created that were good and they mar it and they corrupt it and they try to make it such that it is not fitting its right place, right time, right situation. Just a, a great illustration would be sexuality, right? Sexuality is one of those things that is often not talked about, not discussed, because, of course, it's the kind of thing that is meant, and appropriately so, for kind of more private situations. But here's the thing, that, you know, there's a tendency to kind of think of sex as bad, but it wasn't. It was created to be good. It was created by God with a design, with a purpose, but in its appropriate or its beautiful time, right place, right time, right person, a situation that God had designed, when does it become bad? When does it become what it ought not be? When it is taken out of its proper place, time, circumstance. That's how things are marred. That's how that's how the created order that God has given us becomes, becomes warped and becomes something that it ought not have been. But it's not just about right and wrong in that sense. It's also about our circumstances. It's, it's like you see, I go back to a time to be born and a time to die. I've been a part of this church since 1994. And for much of this time, we've had a lot of people. And because of that, I've encountered a lot of people over the years. And over the course of those years, I've I've enjoyed births. Lots of people that I know having babies. And when they have babies, it's a time of celebration. We get happy. It's exciting. Everybody's celebrating. Of course, as Social media comes into existence. We're able to get on and celebrate and say, hey, yay, this is awesome, so happy for you guys. Marriages, marriages come into the forefront. We get to celebrate, and rightfully so. That's the way things are supposed to go, but also funerals come, right? Death happens, and those, you don't celebrate, obviously, not in the traditional sense. Those are very different. With those ones, you're far, you you know, you, you bring in a totally different attitude, totally different mindset. I bring all this up, though, because here's the thing, guys. Um... 2021 was a year in which I think, in spite of the fact that I have been a part of so many funerals, and I have known so many people who've died just because of the sheer number of people that I've known, I feel like 2021 is the first year that I came to have like a, I don't know, a relationship with death that was unlike anything I've ever had. Partly because in January of 2021, my dad passed away from COVID. And I was with him through that whole process. I literally sat in the room with him the whole time while it was happening. And then I was, I was there through the whole process of planning the funeral, through the whole process of doing the funeral, through the whole process of like sitting with my stepmom and my siblings and, and all of that kind of stuff. And then six months later, one of my best friends who was like a sister to me, same, passed away. And so I had a different relationship with death than I'd really had before. And there's one thing that became very clear to me as I kind of walked through the process of my dad's death. And that was that I I had never, I had never, in my opinion, done death, I think the way that it was meant to be. And I think this is a general thing that Americans tend to do because of this. And I don't think it's just Americans, I think it's humans, but of course. America right now, 21st century, is such a comfortable place to be that it just makes it so much easier to run to the comfort, to run to the peace. Right? It's like when historically, most of the time, it's like a funeral or a death is a thing to get through. Oftentimes, you feel like the whole event is expedited. Like. We have a service and we're going to make it short. We're going to get through it. And then we go and we talk with people. And then we, you know, spend some time with family and close friends. And then we go about our lives and life goes on, right? And that's it. And it's all, there's this feeling of like, we've got to knock down these landmarks and get them done. And then we go about living our lives. And that was just so different for my dad's. And not just because he was my dad, which obviously makes it a different kind of relationship ever. But part of it, I think, is the culture. My dad's from Mexico. And so it's just a different way of dealing with death. It was, and honestly, like when you look at most cultures, most cultures actually treat death differently than historically. Like, like death is the kind of thing where where you get together and you you're with each other. And there isn't this feeling like it's going to ever be over. And and you like where I really saw this was at my dad's wake, where I'd sit there with the coffin open with my stepmom and my brother and my nephew and my sister. And and there are just hundreds of people sitting in the room and most of them are just sitting. They're hardly doing anything. You get up and you walk over to the coffin and you come back and sometimes people come up and hug you and sometimes they pat you on the back, but mostly you're just sitting in it. And almost every culture that I've came across does this. And I'd never done it before. I'd never experienced it. In my whole life, I'd always avoided it. I know that it happens, but it was just like not a thing that I would do. And it's not like it was pleasant. And it's not like it's the kind of thing that I'd be like, oh, hey, everybody, go try this out. I mean, obviously, it's a horrible experience. But at the same time, here was the thing. It made it, it, when I was doing it, I'm like, oh, this is what we're supposed to do. This is what it's supposed to be. And I felt a comfort like I'd never felt before. Sitting there with all these people, some of them my friends, most of them my dad and my stepmom's friends but also like some of my friends who drove from Boise nine hours to come and they just came and they just sat with me and that was it. And I felt loved almost in a way like I'd never felt before. And and I say all of this only because of this, guys, because what Solomon's saying is he's saying, as I look out at the world, there's a time to be born, celebration, rejoicing. We're so happy. And there's a time to die. And I'm not, he's not saying the time to die is when you've reached that age when people die. That's not what he's saying. Because people die of all ages. People die at times when they're not supposed to die. What he's saying is that happens. And when that happens, you got to live it. You got to live it and you've got to walk through it and you've got to embrace it. It's a part of the reality that we live this life under the sun. This is the human experience. And part of the human experience is not just to celebrate births and to celebrate weddings. It is also to, to experience death, a time to live, and a time to die. And we look at some of these things too, guys. It's not just the fact of these experiences, experiences that are outside of our control, but he even throws in things here that don't make a lot of sense to us. I'll give you, I'll draw your attention to verse two, a time to kill and a time to heal. That's weird because in our, I mean, I tend to think of healing as a good, noble cause. Like, like we want to heal. We want to bring healing to people, but it says a time to kill? how could there be a time to kill? Like killing is is wrong, it's bad. But what he's saying is he looks under the sun, he says, there are times, there is a time to kill. Now, I, I don't have time in this study to try to explore all of what could be involved in this particular passage. I'm only gonna draw your attention to a couple of things to kind of illustrate kind of what he's getting at. The first is, uh, you don't need to turn there, but you can jot it down. First Kings chapter two, verse five. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 5. This tells an interesting story. Tells the story of King David on his deathbed. Time to die. He's about to die. And he's talking to his son Solomon, who is going to come into his place and take over as the king. And he's giving him final instructions about what he wants done as power transitions from David to Solomon. And in the course of, these, or of his kind of instructions, he says, uh, Solomon, I want you to take Joab, who was my commander-in-chief, the commander of my armies, and I want you to put him to death. Which is an interesting thing. Joab had been his right-hand man. Joab had helped him fight these civil wars. Joab had always stuck with David, had always been on David's side. And one of David's final commands is, take that guy and put him to death. And then he tells Solomon why. He says, it's a very interesting verse, in verse five, chapter two, he says, he spilled the blood of war in peacetime. Now, let me just give you the context of what he's talking about. David fought wars, and in the course of time, as he came to rise to power, Joab fought in those wars. But at the end of his fighting, David tried to strike a peace with commanding generals of the opposing sides. The first was Saul's general, Abner. The second one was Amasa, who had been a general under David's rebellious son. And David tried to strike a peace with these generals, and tried to welcome them into his army and give them positions in his army. And Joab didn't like that. So when David was flying a flag of truce, when they were at, supposed to be at peace, when these generals, Abner and Amasa, are thinking that their lives are not in danger, that war has been put on hold, and they're gonna come into this room and they're gonna sit down and they're gonna work out plans about what to do. In the midst of that, when they think they're at peace, Joab tricks them and kills both of them. And David looked at that as a black mark on his reputation and as a capital crime, and he said that the man needs to be killed. And so here we have, and I just use it to kind of point out this distinction that is made in the scripture of there's a time, like he says, the blood of war is different from the time of peace. It's a different time. It's a different time. And probably something that you might be able to relate to more, and I think would be probably more obvious, is obviously... If you're in a situation where you are needing to protect somebody, like your child, if let's say, you know, this is I, this is a common example to used and I know it doesn't normally happen, but if somebody were to break into your house and were to try to harm your child, most of us would stop and go now is a time to kill. Now is a time to to do this thing. So all all this to say Solomon is looking and saying saying there's a time of healing and a time of killing. And some of these other ones are more obvious. It's just time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, right? When it is time to weep, when it's time to be sad, you don't want to go in and start telling jokes. That's inappropriate. Jokes are totally appropriate in their time, but there are times when we need to mourn and when we need to weep. I remember I was going through a hard time years ago. I was just like, I'm not a depressed person, but I was, a, I was going through some difficult stuff, and I was, I don't know how well you guys know Tucker personally, but I would imagine you could envision him being the kind of guy who's always trying to lift your spirits, which he is. He's relentless about it. Um, and I remember sitting there once with him, and he was just like, just on me, like, not in a bad way, like just trying to lift my spirits. And I go, dude, haven't you ever been sad? And I'll never forget. He stopped, he looked up, and he goes, once. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> once? That's ridiculous. (laughs) A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to dance. I remember once I was doing a wedding. Didn't realize it at the time, but the bride came from a denomination that doesn't dance. (laughs) And I uh, remember I was sitting there talking about how the wedding is a time of celebration. And what do you do at celebrations? You feast, which they were on board with. And then I said, and you dance. In the middle of the wedding, she goes, no, no. And I go, what? Literally, she goes, we don't dance. <laughs> and I said, okay, okay, we don't dance at this one. <laughs> Weddings are times to dance, right? Like the, but, but again, there are times not to dance. So again, I, 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 can't, I, I don't want to have time to go through all of this. The point that he's getting at here is, is life is a life of flux and change, the human experience is not one thing. It flows and you're, and we don't like it because we like to keep, like we, we don't like change. We want things to stay the same. Uh, I usually go to first service. So you guys may not notice, but I sit in that seat every single time. And it is deeply distressing to me. If I show up and anybody is not sitting in is somebody else is sitting in my seat, to try to see, sit one back is like, you know what I'm saying? Like we don't like change. And And Solomon in here, the preacher is saying, guys, change is human life, and you can't control it. And the quicker you understand that, the more effective you will be at being able to actually live this life that that God has given to us. Let's read on. What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? Notice what he's saying here is he's saying, you're working hard to try to have a profitable life, but at the end of the day, with the flux that we experience, with nothing staying the same, the reality is is whatever you make is going to eventually be lost, if for no other reason than that you will die. By the way, that comes up a lot in this book. It's like his singular obsession, is that the reality is, is everything is defined by this final end that we all die. So what profit is it to us if we work hard, if we're gonna lose it all eventually anyway? I've seen the God-given task, which the sons of men are to be occupied. Like I've watched how people work. He's made everything appropriate in his time. But then there's this other thing. Look at this in verse 11. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. Guys, this is one of those books where I have to, and I could be wrong, know that a preacher, not the preacher who's writing, who's inspired by God, but a preacher who's trying to tell you what this text means, I can be wrong. I hear intonations in the way he talks. And what I hear here, what I think he's doing here is he's, he's expressing frustration. He's not expressing like, he's not saying God has put eternity in our hearts. Isn't that grand? I think he's frustrated. Here's the frustration. And you'll see this come out in the rest of the chapter. We live this life of flux, constant change. We will die. There's a time to die. And that time is for all of us. And in that way, we are not fundamentally like different from animals. We live, we eat, we sleep, we drink, we mate, we work, we die. Fundamentally, that's what every creature on the world or in the world does. There's really no difference. But there is one thing that is different about you and me that presumably, I, I mean, I guess we can't read their minds and they can't talk, is very different about us and the animals and that is they don't think about it. The animal eats and drinks and sleeps and mates and dies, and he just goes about doing it. He's only concerned with what is currently in front of him. And he doesn't think about the big questions that we are wrestling with all the time. Why am I here? Where do I come from? What about the past? How did the world come into existence? What happens when I die? Do I have a purpose? We are plagued by those things constantly. And the preacher sits here and he says... God has put eternity in our hearts. He's put eternity in our hearts. Except no one can find out the work that God is doing from beginning to end. We have all these questions and we can't answer them. And he's saying that's so tragic. It would be so much better if we were like the cow who doesn't worry about these kinds of things. He literally eats all the time and that's it but we have to think about it. Why am I here? Now, again, I'm reading an intonation, like a tone, but the verse after this, and do do you guys do this? I do it all the time. You're sitting there thinking, maybe praying, doing a little bit of both, like I'll go back between praying and thinking, and I'll think about something, and I'll think, ooh, what I'm thinking now is wrong or impious. You ever had that? And then you stop and go, no, God, but I do believe the right thing. You guys do that? I do it all the time. I think that's what he's doing here. He's going, why have you put eternity in our hearts but not given us an answer? Which sounds like he's frustrated. But then verse 12, he goes, I I know, I know that there's nothing better for them than to rejoice, to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat, drink, and enjoy the good of all his labor. It's a gift from God. He's like, He's like, I do know we have to go about life in God. I know this is a gift. I know this is good. I believe you. I don't think that the preacher is an apostate. I don't think he's like, turned his back on God. He's like, "Lord, I know. I know you're good. I know you've given us what we need. I just have these questions. I'm wrestling with these questions." And he continues on verse 14, "I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him." Like he doesn't tell every tell us everything because he wants us to rely on him and to like to fear him. That which has already been and what is to be has already been, and God requires an account of what is past. In other words, I know God is going to judge, and I know he's going to require accounts. Like, I believe all these things. I believe all the right things. And notice also what he communicates through here. Notice what he says about what God does. It shall be forever. He's just got done talking about the flux of human life, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal. Not with God. With God, there is no flux. What he does is forever. I know that. I don't see it, but I believe it. He's asserting what he needs to believe. But the preacher, like we often can, he goes back and forth. And so what's the next thing he says? Verse 15, or sorry, verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. Meaning I looked at Kings and councils and courts and judges and governors and mayors. And, and I noticed that these places where people are responsible to protect others, to, to look out for those who are oppressed, to meet the needs of people who are impoverished. I noticed people who have to deliver judgment, that unrighteousness is there, that injustice is there that unjust judges make proclamations that are wrong. And guys, this is bad. He's, he's, again, he goes back to it, he's lamenting. He's like, why in the place of judgment do we have injustice? And guys, something very important here I want to point out. Just how strong the sense of injustice can seep into your heart. When you experience injustice, it's a startling thing. I, I'm I'm reading... Um, Uh, Man's Search for Meaning uh, by Frankl, Victor Frankl? I think that's his first name, I forget. He was a survivor of the concentration camps. And one of the things he talks about in describing his own experience in World War II, being at Auschwitz, is he talks about all the physical horrors that he experiences, the beatings and all of these things. But he says as bad as the physical pain was, he said the thing that was the worst was the injustice of it all being punished for doing something that he didn't actually do. Like, they would accuse him of false things and they'd beat him. And it wasn't the physical beating. He said, as bad as that was, it was not as bad as the reality of the injustice. And and the truth is, guys, if you just think about your own lives, like, just think about how injustice that you've seen ever just sticks in your head. It can even be nothing. When I was in fourth grade, my teacher did an ice cream party. And I'll never forget, she said, class, we're bringing ice cream, and you're gonna stand in line. If anybody says one word, if you talk, you will get no ice cream. There is no way I wasn't going to get ice cream. I love ice cream, and there's no way I was gonna talk. I got in that line, and I stood there, and I was quiet. And I was waiting, biding my time. I remember there was a kid behind me, Danny Compton, still remember his name, he was talking. And I remember looking back at him and kind of chuckling and Danny Compton's talking. He's not going to get ice cream. And all of a sudden, bam, Mrs. Pyle. She says, Tommy Velasco, you go sit in your desk. You're not getting any ice cream. And I go, what? She's like, don't you what me? You don't think I heard you? And I'm like crying. I'm like, Mrs. Pyle, I didn't say anything. She's like, you are lying to me. And I'm like, I am not lying. I was not lying. I was telling the truth. She says, you go and sit down. And I went and sat down. And I put my head on my desk and I cried. Here's the thing. She might have ended up giving me the ice cream. I don't remember. Because the outcome didn't matter. What mattered is I did not talk. And I know I didn't talk. And she accused me of talking. Injustice. So if we feel it at that low level, think about the great injustices that have been perpetrated throughout the world and indeed are, imperpetrated, or are perpetrated today. I have a friend who sat on death row for 15 years, he used to go to this church. Death row for 15 years before DNA evidence kind of, our ability to decipher DNA evidence evolved and they came to discover that he was not the guilty perpetrator. And so he was released, sorry. And, and, And I want you to think about the injustice of this because it's not just the 15 years of his life that was lost, which is horrible. The thing that I can never get past is the 15 years of everybody you know and love thinking you did this horrible thing. And that just happens all the time. And sometimes it happens because unjust judges and unjust prosecutors, or sometimes people out of totally bad motivations just do it, and that does happen. And the injustice of it all. And so as he's sitting here looking at this, he's like, life is unjust. And how can that ever be resolved under the sun? Because we're all going to die, and then the injustice is going to be forgotten, and the people are going to be forgotten. How is this ever rectified? Verse 17, I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. In other words, this is his, see, he has these affirmations of faith spread throughout this. He goes, judgment has to happen. I don't know how, but it has to happen, because there must be justice in a world where there's a God. For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. So if there's a time for everything I've already talked about, there also will be, there must be a time for justice and judgment to really be effectively produced. Verse 18. Now here we get into the big part of this passage. Like this is kind of the big thing. I said in my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. I kind of set you up for this already, that the prophet, or the preacher here is looking and he's saying, we are like the animals. And what makes us most like the animals is that we die, just like the animals. For whatever happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over the animals. All is vanity, hebel. That's what Dr. Whitaker told us about last week, right? That word that appears 38 times in this book, hebel, vanity, emptiness. He's saying like, you know, it's like the one thing that gives any meaning or purpose to all of this life under the sun is the idea that it goes on for some reason. And if it doesn't, if death is the end, then it is all emptiness and grasping for the wind. It is nothing. Nothing grasping for the wind, like you're trying to grab meaning, and there can't be meaning if this life is all there is, and he says, I see animals die, I see people die, and I don't see a difference, he's simply stating something very plain, he's like, I can't see, I don't see people resurrecting, I don't see people going to heaven, like I'm going like, keep, keep reading here, he says, all go to one place, all are from the dust, all return to the dust, Again, very simply, what do you do with a dead human body? You put it in the ground, and it decomposes into the dust. What do you do with a dead animal? You put it in the ground, and it decomposes into the dust. We all return to dust. Now, here, guys, I mentioned earlier about how there's a couple of passages in the New King James which are mistranslated. This one is very badly translated, and if you have pretty much any other translation, it will do it correctly, okay? Verse 21, who knows the spirit of the sons of men which goes upward and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth. Again, this follows this order because it's it's following in the, the King James translation and has been wrongly used to establish a doctrine like here, this is telling us that, that the spirit of a man goes to heaven after he dies and the spirit of an animal doesn't so that animals don't go to heaven. That's not what he's saying. The correct translation of this, which as I said, almost any, I mean, if you have a, a new American standard, an NIV, uh, an ESV, you name it, it's gonna read it this way. Who knows whether the spirit of a man goes upwards to heaven and the spirit of an animal goes downward? What he's saying there is he's saying, who knows whether there's a difference between us after this is all over? Who knows? And you might say, wait a minute, we're Christians. We know. A couple of things to remember. First of all, remember how limited his knowledge would have been in terms of the scripture, right? He would have had the law some other, you know, you know, some of the things he wrote, perhaps, some other things. But in general, he did not have a lot of scripture to draw from. And the scriptures he did have didn't really speak of afterlife, hardly at all. But even aside from what he had available to him, I want you to stop and consider what makes this book so powerful is that it expresses human experience. Every human asks this question. And you might stop and go, no, 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 no. Lord, I know, I know people go to heaven, but we all ask it. Like I said, I referenced the deaths of my father and, and my friend, Brooke. I don't, I, when it happened, in both instances, there is one feeling that overwhelmed me for a lot. It didn't happen all the time, but it'd pop up. And that was this, what if I am wrong and this is it? How can you not sometimes ask yourself that question? What if I am wrong and this is it? Because if I am wrong and when I died, that is it. Or when my dad died and that was it. When, when my friend died, that is it. I will never see them again. And perhaps more than anything else, that helps me to understand that word Hebel. Because at that moment, vanity and emptiness and meaningless, like what is life? It's nothing. It is literally nothing. We're here today Gone tomorrow. All flesh, as the scripture tells us, is like grass. It's like the flower is, or uh, the, sorry, the 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 glory of man is like the flower of a grass. It's here today and it is gone tomorrow. Life is a vapor. It's here and gone. And if there is nothing after, then what's it all for? And this guy is saying, I I don't know. I don't know if when you die you go any further. That's what he's saying. And he says we can't know. Verse 22, so I perceive that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works. Like do the best you can in enjoying the things you're doing now because it's the only thing you definitely have for that is his heritage. And here's the key verse that I want to end kind of our final point with. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Here, I really want to make two points. The first is really kind of what I was just saying. The first thing is recognize that when you feel that feeling, when that question arises in your mind, maybe it arises at the death of a loved one, maybe it just arises philosophically, when you're going through your mind and you're going, Do I really know? Just know you're not being bad when that question pops up. It's part of what it means to be human. It's part of why I think God allowed this book to be in the Bible. God is communicating, God is teaching us incarnationally, meaning, God's word is infusing a human being so that we can see the human experience and how God would communicate to us in that human experience. And people feel this and it's normal. And you might sit there and go, sorry, Lord, I do believe, I do believe. I did that, I've done that. But I also know that that thing is there and it does, it's like, I can't like prove it 100% where like, I just go, I mean, it's like, I don't see it. Just like he doesn't see it. I've never met anybody who raised from the dead. You know what I mean? But then he says, so that's my first thing. Just recognize it's normal and you're not being impious. and You're not being a bad Christian. But also he says, who will show me? And I did want to leave because the the book of Ecclesiastes, I don't think is as depressing as it often seems like, but you kind of have to read the whole thing and we don't have the time to read the whole thing. So I have to leave off the really non-depressing parts for later. But I do want to take this last sentence, who can show us, and take you to a passage. This will be our last passage. If you could turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Keep in mind, this is not something that Solomon would have had. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse three. Paul here is addressing the church at Corinth and he's addressing the fact that There were people in the church who didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, actually believed it didn't happen. That might seem weird, but those guys were there. And He's essentially trying to say, that's crazy. Let me tell you what is true. And he's gonna reference something that is really important for you guys to understand. Verse three of chapter 15, Paul speaking. I delivered to you first of all that which I also received. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he rose again, the third day, according to the scriptures, right? Christ lived, he died, he rose again three days later, according to the scriptures, right? According to prophetic works that Solomon would not have had access to, we have these, or at least ones that make it a little clearer, I guess. There were some passages that I think you could have referred to that he might've had access to, but but, but from Paul's vantage point, it's like we can see it clearly in the scriptures. Jesus was going to die, he was gonna resurrect. But now here's the thing I want you to note. Verse five, he was seen by Cephas. That's Peter, by the way. Then by the 12. And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain at the present, but some have fallen asleep. He says, guys, over 500 people saw Jesus raised from the dead. And most of them are still alive with us. Go ask them. Go ask them if you want to know. After that, he was seen by James, which interestingly is Jesus' brother. So Jesus' brother saw him resurrected. Then by all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Luke in Acts chapter one is gonna say that Jesus showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. I only say all of this, guys, because I want you to understand that the scriptures doesn't, doesn't leave us nothing to base our faith on. It does leave us something. The testimony of these men who saw something after, men and women, who who saw something after and who told that message, who preached it, and who, by the way, were rounded up and arrested and tortured and killed for this message, who at any point could have recanted it, could have said, you're right, I made it all up. Didn't happen. But they went to the death saying, nope, I saw a guy resurrect. I saw him resurrect from the dead. And you have to understand that Paul and Luke, they're both saying, this is something you can rely upon, something you can believe in. Now, this doesn't resolve everything for us. It's not like it's not like I proved it in one sense. You still probably haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. There's always a room for it to sneak in. The Lord gives us these little gifts to kind of say, look, I'm not, I'm not bringing you along with nothing. I'm giving you reasons to believe. I'm giving you revelation. I'm giving you truth. But you do have to just step out in faith. And that's, the thing is, is that, is that, as we are told in scriptures, we walk by faith, not by sight. And that's the life that we have to live. That's, that's the thing that I think the preacher draws us to in Ecclesiastes, is he's trying to show us what walking by sight does and what walking by sight gets us. And the reality is, is it only gets us so far. We have to be able to see beyond that sight. And so with that in mind, with this idea of like death and of resurrection, let's do that thing which brothers and sisters all across the world are doing where we get together and we remember the death and the resurrection of our Lord. Would you stand with me and prepare our hearts for communion? As you receive the elements, as you receive the bread and as you receive the cup, remember what it symbolizes that the bread that you're looking at, which is perishable, something that is very much like grass here today, gone tomorrow, something that will be gone the moment you consume it, it represents Jesus's perishable body. And the cup represents Jesus's spilled blood that is like a vapor. It's here and then it's gone. But what it symbolizes as we eat it is his resurrection life. The fact that that he resurrected with a new body that is imperishable, that will not ever go away, that is not like grass or like the flower of the grass, that is here, is here and will go on forever. Remember those things as we partake today. Join me in prayer, Father, we love you. We, we're so thankful for your word, for the example that you give to us through it, for the instruction that you give us in it. Our prayer, Lord, is is that as we do prepare our hearts for communion, Lord, that we would remember the many sure proofs and like the, the strong foundation that you have given to us, Lord, to receive from you by faith. We're thankful for the sacrifice of our Lord. We're thankful for his death and we're thankful for his resurrection, which gives us life. And we pray that as we do finish up in worship and as we finish up in communion, God, that you would be glorified. Be glorified, Father, in Jesus' name.